You're listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled Innocent Blood, a Demon, and the Holy Spirit, recorded on February 24th, 2019. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Well, hello, Harvest Community Church. Great to see all you and uh, even those I can't see. And uh, if you're a first-time guest, glad you're here. My name is Mike, and we're in 1 Samuel 19, the second half of Samuel, the rise of, of David the great king. And chapter 19, man, that should be a Netflix miniseries. I would binge that. We had David on the run from a jealous, insane king, right? We have, he's got a royal friend inside the palace who talks his dad out of killing him, um, and everything seems good until God, of all people, or of all persons, I should say, sends a, a demon, and, um, and that, that causes Saul to want to kill David. Didn't seem to improve things from our point of view, and then uh, David's wife, Michael, tries the old Oh, he's sick in bed trick with the fake dude in the bed. That never works in any of the movies. So he runs away to the prophets, and the soldiers are coming to get him, and they're hit by a Holy Spirit force field. Finally, the king comes to get him. He's not only hit by the Holy Spirit force field, but the Holy Spirit makes him take off all his clothes and lay down for two days. That's a wild story. (laughs) I don't think my sermon could live up to that chapter, but... I want to focus on three things, and I put them all in the title this, this week. Innocent blood, a demon, and the Holy Spirit. Trying to, to, to grab a hold of the three major things going on. First, innocent blood. We're going to take them all in order. Saul calls his boy Jonathan in and says, Jonathan, I think it's time to kill David. And Jonathan is taken off guard. He makes a great argument. He's like, you know, he only is good for the kingdom. He kills our enemies and, 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 and the whole nation's rejoicing. Your kingship is kind of off to a great start because of him. Um, and then he throws this in. Verse 5. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? That his, 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 his argument leads up to that. Why would you sin against innocent blood? And that really is a strong argument from the point of view of Jews. Uh, Because if you read in the Bible, first, by the way, there is no innocent people on the earth except little bitty babies just born, and then they're not innocent long. Soon as they learn right from wrong, they will let their mother know (laughs) that they figured that out. And Jesus. So there's really no one innocent but Jesus. So innocent blood doesn't mean David is innocent from all sin. It means He's done nothing worthy of being murdered. So Jonathan drops that on him. It worked initially until it didn't, until that demon came along. Michael helped. I'm not going to get in much more to Jonathan and Michael this week, except to uh, imagine out loud that they must have had an awesome mom. Uh, Because I went, because they're just awesome kids, right? Jonathan is as quality a man as you're going to get. And Michael, she's going to, I think, take harsh punishment later on for, for criticizing the dance moves of her husband. But that's a whole other story. hasn't come up yet. But she's quality woman. I mean, these are faithful people who are willing to stick their necks out to do the right thing. Uh, so I went and tried to find out everything I could about Jonathan's mother. And everything you can find in the Bible on Jonathan's mother is a name and I could be wrong, could be grandma, could be an aunt, but somebody is teaching these kids to live right. And, and perhaps that's an encouragement to all of us. If you want to make an impact on the church and your world, um, and you think, well, I've got to raise kids if you happen to have them, uh, there's no better way. There's no better way. But anyway, end that little uh, sidebar into their mom and get back to this innocent blood. Innocent blood's a big deal to God. It is perhaps the biggest deal as far as what you can do wrong in the Bible. And then perhaps there'll be theologians to argue with me, but my own thoughts through what the Scripture says, I can't think of another thing you can do in the Bible worse than murder. It's set out when Noah gets off the ark and there's only four men 
and four women alive, and they're about to multiply and fill the planet. God does not weigh them down with a bunch of laws. He says, look, eat whatever you see that's not human. If it moves, you can eat it. He didn't mention blowfish, but, you know, I don't know. Don't eat the blowfish unless you have a very expensive Japanese chef. And if you don't know why, look it up on Google. But he said, you can eat anything you want. He said, but I'm just going to give you one rule. If anybody kills any human beings, I require their blood, which means those people have just forfeited their lives. And they could be animals. If an animal kills a human, and you know, today, you, you, I have relatives in Alaska, and the fun thing about going to Alaska in the summer is someone always gets eaten or stomped to death by nature. Every year you go up there, there's a bear that ate somebody. It's not fun if it's you, of course. Or there's a moose that got cornered and stomped you to death. And every time this happens, the, the routine is put the animal down. But more and more modern days, people say, no, don't put the animals down. Just doing what's natural to him. And I agree. I agree. A bear eating you because you're near its cub, it's not necessarily a sin that he's doing, but he still dies. Why? Because he shed innocent blood. Then Noah is told by God, but if a human being sheds a human being's blood, he too forfeits his life. It, it, it's, it, God sets out mankind, filling the earth, with one rule. Human beings, because, he says in Genesis, are made of my image, have the right to walk on this earth unmolested. You should not murder any of them. You and I should be free in any country in the world to not be killed just for being, just for being ourselves. But God takes it so seriously that he says this is the capital punishment issue for all mankind. So, the innocent blood argument. But it gets worse because when you're a Jew, God ups the ante. He gives them not just don't kill people. He gives them the law with everything that's right and wrong and his holiness and all these things. And he's especially tough on murder. He's especially tough on murder. And he seems to say that if you kill someone and that killing goes unavenged, your entire nation is not holy. The blood of Abel cries out from the ground, right? The, um, you know, O.J. Simpson's wife lying dead. Her blood cries out to the, from the ground. If, if this was Israel, it's not. It was California. But this is how God said, if you kill someone and you do not punish the person who did it by taking their life, their blood cries out. Because there's nothing more serious or more valuable on the earth than a human. Nothing. Let me read you one part of the law so you can get the weight of this. This is from Numbers 35. You shall not pollute the land in which you live. For blood pollutes the land. No atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, and in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. And in the midst of, say, in the midst, I'm repeating that. In, it, when he says, look, don't defile this with innocent blood, this land, he has actually appointed an avenger of blood. This is not a job I'd want to have. It's kind of like the Punisher. <laughs> if you saw that show, The Punisher, he'd like to have this job. There's actually someone appointed with a job called the avenger of blood. His whole job is to hunt down people who have killed people and kill them. That may seem cruel on the punishment side, but it is honoring to the value of your life. If all, if everyone knew that the cost for killing you unjustly was their own life, you become much more valuable and much more safe. Sticking up for the innocent is the Christian's duty. And it goes all the way from murdering someone for just taking advantage of innocent people, lying in wait. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about don't lie in wait for people and jump them. Well, most of you don't do that. 
I think there's, there should be something for credit card companies or you know what I'm saying? And I mean this. There's people who lie in wait. They call elderly people and tell them there's someone they're not and get them to write them checks. No, I, they're not murdering them, but what's the difference? It's a smaller grade. And the Christian should always be ready to fight. I'm amazed how many times you see people on, on YouTube or, or on Twitter in videos getting beat up in public while everyone stands around and watches an innocent person get beat up. Nobody wants to stick their neck out. Well, I'm saying it's a Christian duty to be like Jonathan and Michael. To stick your neck out, your reputation, and perhaps at times your life. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to think this way. (laughs) I'm not saying that in every situation I'm going to be a hero. But that doesn't change right and wrong. I am not shocked at the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in post-Civil War America. Why am I not shocked? Because man is evil. The Bible says he's evil. He does evil things. I am not shocked that black men got lynched in their front yards or wherever to, to keep them in their place, right? What shocks me is I am certain, I am certain in my gut that there's no way 100% of the white Christian men or white Christian women, but... As a man, I'd like to jump on that, agreed with that. What I wonder is, how come they weren't out in front of the house of that person defending them with their lives? How come they, and maybe some were, maybe history's forgotten some courageous people. But it is the tendency of us to be cowardly when it's going to cost us to stand up for someone else. And we ought not be that way. To follow God takes some courage. We have some great examples we have in the Bible. We have the Hebrew midwives. If you don't know that story, um, look it up in Genesis. They were told, kill all the firstborn males that, or no, all the males that come out of a Jew. And um, they just didn't do it. And the Pharaoh could whack them. Heck, <laughs> but he, they came up with a wild story. He says, these women just give birth fast. What are we going to do? <laughs> You have a, a very famous story among American evangelical Christians that uh, is worth holding up, The Hiding Place by Corey Tint Boom, a terrific book to read, way better than the movie, which leaves out all the details like movies do. And that's where an entire family put their business and their lives on the line to save Jews who were innocently being targeted in Holland, and it did cost them. Members of their family did die in prison. They did lose their wealth, their businesses, but they did what Christians should do. How do we bring this home to us? Well, obviously in a nation that is worried about hate crimes, um, I don't think of anything more hateful than killing babies or anyone more innocent than a baby. They've done neither good nor bad. And they are slain. Now, I'm not saying this to condemn the unbelievers who are lost, blinded by Satan. But I am saying it to encourage you and I. Any way you can lend your voice or your cash or your actions or whatever it takes. You got, and and hey, here's where it happens. The best way to prevent abortion isn't going to be by giving money to the local pro-life clinic. Though, do give that money. Okay, give it because they are the lighthouse for the women who make it there. But my guess is most abortions that are prevented, it happens in a living room or a kitchen table because one person who knows the woman has the guts to stand up and say, Mom, shut up. It's wrong. Don't tell her to do that. And uh, maybe you'll be in that situation. And you want to know, do I have permission? Yeah. You don't only have permission, you have an obligation. Another area, and this is very sensitive, and it probably deals with a very small minority, but it's so regular it needs to be stated. Sex abuse in the home is often overlooked by brothers, mothers, grandparents, fathers, aunts, uncles for years because they don't want to upset and lose their reputation, their family, whatever. 
you're in that situation, yeah, it'll take guts. But as a Christian, you're obligated to break that family system, even if it means you yourself are putting your own life on the line. It's hard for us to be heroic. We're all heroic in our dreams, right? In my mind, I'm always going to jump on. I'm going to jump in front of the bus for you, right? That's me. (laughs) So one time I'm in Chicago. I'm a young man, a new Christian. And new Christians always do everything right in their own minds. And we're real heroes. So I'm standing by the elevated train platform. And the train comes, but it's like five feet down that the train track is. And there's this drunk dude who's about as big as me. And he's walking something like this. And now, I wasn't as big as me back then. I ate a, I ate a hobbit or something and got bigger. <laughs> I was like 175 back then. And, and, and I see, this guy could go right into in, the track. And immediately, my mind says, you've got to stop him. You've got to get between him and that track. And, I've, and then just as fast, my mind says, and you'll die too, maybe. <laughs> and then immediately, my mind says, you don't really want to die for a drunk. So I ain't saying it's going to always be easy. <laughs> My mind immediately, and I don't know what I would have done, but God looks after drunks sometimes, and he veered back to the middle, and he was fine. And I never had to find out whether I was going to be a coward in that moment or not. But you know what I do know? Jesus didn't die for innocent blood like Jonathan, and he he, he didn't lay down his life for, for someone who shouldn't have been punished like, like Michael and risked it all. He wasn't like Corey Ten Boom. He, he laid down his life for the guilty. For the guilty. He's better than all of us. He's better than all of us. In Romans it says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you want to be saved? First, be ungodly. You don't expect that in church, do you? You want to be saved? Be good. No, no. If you want to be saved, first be ungodly. Some of you are thinking, I got that down. Good. (laughs) Step one. Step two. Now feel bad about it. (laughs) Because God has mercy on the ungodly. let's, Let's write this down and then get back to the scripture here. A summary statement for our notes. Jesus died for our sins while we were still sinners. He's so much more awesome even than a great example like Jonathan. Jesus rescues and forgives anyone who believes in him. How much more will he rescue us now that we have been forgiven by him? If you're new to Harvest, you say, how do you get to Jesus from the Old Testament? We always get to Jesus here. <laughs> we do it at funerals. We do it at weddings. We do it at everything. What's the recipe for those cookies? Well, you need sugar. You need oil. You need Jesus. You need flour. Like, how do you get in there? He's our hero. Verse 7 of Romans 5 says this, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. And that reminded me of that time of me on that platform. I, wasn't, I did not want to die for what I thought to be a lesser individual. Of course, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner just like him. But he wasn't a little kid chasing a ball in traffic. He was a drunk. But God demonstrates his love for us. Romans 5, 8. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So before I get to the rest of this message, I want to make sure everyone here knows, especially those who have yet to give their lives to Christ, and I'm certain there's people in here, that Jesus died for you to rescue you. You cannot rescue yourself by being good. You cannot rescue yourself by being righteous. If being ungodly is offensive to you, go read your Bible and compare yourself not to another man, but to God himself. You will see you are ungodly, just like I am. But the good news is, God cares so much about you that he sent his only son to die in your place. Today could be the day you're forgiven of sins. We'll come back to that. But right now, let's move on to the demon. That was the innocent blood. Now we got a demon. Something strange happened as David was playing a song. Right? He's playing a song. And uh, Jonathan says, hey, Dave, I talked to Dad. We're good. 
when you come, bring your guitar. <laughs> so he's strumming away, and, and apparently he's a great songwriter. In the Psalms, we have many of David's Psalms, I think like 70 or something he wrote. They are actual songs. We don't know the melodies. I wish we did. Um, he's probably better than the Beatles. And, and he's, he's playing for Saul, just jamming for him, because Saul's a rock and roll guy, and he likes to hear songs. And everything's copacetic. And then verse 9 happens. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. First, who sits in their house with a spear in it? Don't go an NRA member back then. And <laughs> he must be from Armstrong County, you know. <laughs> I know that groundhog's coming. I got to be ready. And David was playing his lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. A harmful spirit, the New American Standard would say evil spirit. And I say, as you read your Bible, don't you got to stop and go, what? What? Who sent this evil spirit? The Lord sent the evil spirit? It, it does not make immediate sense. The Lord is on David's side. We saw that last chapter. Everything he did succeeded. David seems to have saved himself from death through Jonathan's pleadings. And God is the one who kind of messes that all up by sending a demon on Saul. And he goes, okay, murder's back on. <laughs> what? What? How can these things be? Well, I want to answer that question because it is a good question and one we should think about and see what the Bible says. So first principle, and I'm going to strengthen it with Scripture, but here's the principle. God is sovereign over all things, including angels and demons. By sovereign, I mean He's the king. He's the ruler over everything. And, and along those lines, we as Christians must reject dualism as a philosophical view of good and bad. By that, I mean this. The idea that there are two great powers. There's God and Satan, and they're at war. It's wrong. It's just wrong. And Christians often will get this wrong. And we can't get it wrong. We, it's like we think God and the devil are like Star Wars. You have the force, and you have the dark side of the force, right? And who's going to win? I don't know. You know, <laughs> you got to admit, the dark side of the force guys look a lot tougher than the force guys, right? You, we got that little, I mean, Yoda is not that intimidating. <laughs> like when he bounces around that lightsaber, I'm like, no. <laughs> you got the other dude, looks like the devil with stuff coming off his head. My money's on him. And he, he better lose because good and evil in the universe is up for grabs. Or maybe we think God and Satan is like the yin and yang symbol. The, you've seen it in the circle with the little polywog inside with a dark spot and a light spot, and, and that's supposed to represent two balancing forces in all the universe, and good and evil are in balance, as if they're equal. But even, and this is, I guess, for older Christians, I hate to do this, but it's a good example. Frank Peretti's wrote a book called This Present Darkness, which was all the rage, I think in what, the 90s, if I remember right, late 80s. And, and he wrote, and he's a Christian writer, and he writes this book where he shows the, the spiritual world that you can't see. And in this spiritual world, like a person will be talking to an unbeliever. It could be at a gas station. It could be the gas station attendant. You know, it could be a teacher. And the teacher has a demon on her head. And, and you can see it because Frank Peretti's book shows it. And there's this big nasty monster, and it's got claws in her head. And because the demon's on the teacher's head, she's doing demony things, saying evil stuff to the student. And the student, who's got like an angel nearby, they're like sneering at each other, the angel and the demon. And the only way to stop the teacher from winning the battle is for someone to pray. Because when you pray, that demon goes, Ooh! and Christians were into this. Now it's a novel, I know. But you've got to be careful with novels. You got to be careful. You can't just say God is like this and demons are like that. That's the dumbest book in the world when you compare it with truth. It's nowhere near the reality the Bible gives. Where if, if you don't pray just right, the demons are going to win and who's going to lose? God? Is God going to lose? To demons? 
God is not locked in a mortal battle with Satan. Because God can't die and Satan can. (laughs) Satan is a created being and a tool. And I mean that in both senses of the word tool. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And here's the part that talks about angels and demons, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those are spiritual beings. So the spiritual beings are there, but they all things were created through him and for him. Demons created spiritual beings. That's all they are. That's all they are is created spiritual beings. God is the creator. He can do anything he wants to them, anytime he wants to them. They're no threat to him. They're no threat to his kingdom. We saw this displayed when God became man and dwelt among us. In your readings of the Bible, did any of those fights between Jesus and the demons look close? Any of them? Any of them? You thought, there's a a bunch of demons on this guy. It's legion. wonder if Jesus can fight them all. You know, and Jesus is like, oh, he took a body blow. Jesus is like, out. And they're gone. And the demons know this. Remember what the demons said then? They said, son of man, who, why are you here? Are you here to torment us before it's time? They actually know that their doom is secure. Hell, I'm not going to get into hell. The lake of fire, the ultimate place of judgment. We think, well, Satan's down there poking people with pitchforks. (laughs) And he's the boss, right? (laughs) Satan's the boss down in hell. He's like, he rules. He has an office. <laughs> he uses a lot of Louisiana Red Hot on his, on his food, you know. And you're stuck there, and he's poking you with a fork. So stupid. Satan is not in hell. He's not in the lake of fire. Yet, when he goes, he won't want to. All right? <laughs> right? It's like throwing a mouse in a meat grinder. He doesn't want to go. Not that you should try that. He doesn't want to go. And when he goes, he'll be tormented. He will be a resident, not the boss. Second principle is God uses demons for his own purposes. You know, if if they're created, why did he create them? If he knew that even though they started out good, they were going to turn evil. You know what the answer is? Because it was best. Now, you might say, well, why was it best? Well, then I'm going to say, I don't know. Ask God when you see him face to face. (laughs) But God only does good. He only does what's best. And if there are evil spiritual beings that he made good that turned against him, you might say, well, why did he make beings that could turn against him? Because that's what's best. Well, how is it best? I don't know. But he made them for his own purposes. God used in our situation here an evil spirit to cause Saul to behave according to Saul's sinful nature. Saul wanted to kill David anyway. Someone talked him out of it. Demon's like, hey, be yourself. He's like, okay. (laughs) And by the way, that's the way demons work. They don't try to get you to do new things. They get you to do the things you want to do anyway. They're like cheerleaders. Ugly, nasty, vile cheerleaders. Now, you might say at this point, well, so you're saying God somehow ruled over this demon getting permission to beat up the king of Israel. Yes. At this point, as a good American, you should say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Is that fair? The answer is yes, it's fair. Everything God does is fair. Saul's not a good guy. The fact that he's breathing isn't fair, if you want to look at it that way. The fact that he's not sucked down into punishment himself since he, he sins. The fact that any of us live and enjoy ice cream isn't fair. Kids always say it's not fair. And in their local situations, they're often right. It isn't fair. And mom and dad's justice is often not fair either. He took my candy and ate it. Don't take your sister's candy. Kid's like, that's not fair. I don't have the candy now. Kid's right. 
So my kids would say it's not fair. I'd hear them and I'd say, if life were fair, we'd all be in hell, so shut up. And they can tell you that's true. (laughs) You're not the best dad in the world. Also not fair, that's the way it goes. (laughs) Paul, speaking of the salvation of Israel, instead of the salvation of Edom, in Malachi, I think it's Malachi, Paul, Paul references that and says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh was a tool of God. Now he was a rotten dude. The Bible's full of his own rottenness. But then God said, okay, you're going to be rotten. I'm going to make it worse. I'm going to just keep hardening your heart, and you ain't going to like how this ends. And you say, well, is that fair? Sure, it's fair. God made him. Saul has rejected God. We've seen that. He has rejected the way of faith. And God used him as a tool, and he used the demon too. Then you might say, why did he have him stirred up to do that? I don't know. I don't. God obviously didn't want Saul to live a long life. But he did. And maybe he had to test, I don't know. Now I'm guessing, thinking out loud. Maybe David needed a sanctification. He needed a little trouble in his life. I mean, Don't give the kingship to him too easily or it's going to go to his head. I don't know. I have no idea. Third uh, principle here when it comes to the demonic attacking Saul. God limits demons. Keeping them from destroying mankind, especially believers. The Bible's pretty clear of what Satan, who's the boss of the demons, wants to do. He's a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. Therefore, if somebody, an unbeliever or a believer, let's take an unbeliever person who Let's take someone who hates God and says it. I hate God. Okay. You might think, well, that person's in complete control of Satan. No, he's probably not. Because if he was, he'd be much worse than that. He'd be much worse than that. The grace of God even protects unbelievers from what would Satan do with a person he had complete control over? You don't know? Haven't you seen the omen? You know, (laughs) haven't you seen Rosemary's Baby? Don't watch those movies. But you'd know... (laughs) I don't know. They kill one another. They kill other people. Thank God he protected me before I came to him. Because I was definitely working for the wrong side. How about you? But he also protects believers. God's in control. Examples from believers in the Bible? Well, there's Job. Job is... Minding his own business, living a great life, very righteous, good before God. Satan comes and says, can I have permission to mess with this dude? And God says, yes, just don't kill him. (laughs) Why? Read the book, study Job, figure it out. The point is, he couldn't mess with Job unless God said yes, and he couldn't go beyond the spot where God said, that's as far as you go. How about Paul? Paul, the great apostle, got to see heaven, said the third heaven, which is probably just where God is in the spirit. Some people want to make that, well, there's one heaven, and the little angels are there, and second heaven. That's probably not it. It's probably more like the sky is heaven, the stars are the second heaven, the third heaven is wherever God is. But regardless, he saw something amazing, and God said, you can't even tell people on earth what you're seeing which always makes me skeptical of all these people who have books that they went to heaven and came back, or they went to hell and came back. You go to hell. This one guy said, was it nine, 29 minutes in hell? And of course, he, had, he was getting stabbed by de- demons. First, that's fake. Second, I'm thinking 29 minutes of hell is enough PTSD for 29 years of combat. You ain't coming back from that one. Well, apparently, you can't come back from being in heaven. And God said to Paul, there's things you're not to say. And then God sent him 
a thorn in the flesh, a messenger, which means angel, from Satan. God sent a messenger from Satan to bug Paul. Why? Well, he tells us that reason. Because I'd been to heaven, this keeps me from being proud and sinning. Wild, huh? Peter, do you ever catch this? Before Jesus went to the cross, Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. When? We don't know. <laughs> but Satan, chatting with the Father, <laughs> demanding things from God, said, I get Peter. This guy's a, he's a phony. He's going to sell you out. He's going to deny you three times. You already said so. He's mine. He demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Look, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Here is Jesus saying, Peter, you don't know what reckless position you're in. You think you're in charge here, that you're in control, that you're going to do the right thing. I got news for you. You're not only going to do the wrong thing. Satan thinks because of your weakness, he has a right over you. So don't act all tough, but I'll tell you this. I'm looking out for you. I am looking out for you, he says. So God is limiting Satan's activity in Peter's life. Peter will blow it. He will deny the Lord, but he won't go any farther than that. And his faith doesn't fail. This says, when you turned again, strengthen your brothers. He, Simon had no idea Satan was bartering for his soul. Jesus rescued him. In your own life, we don't have a lot of time for this, but just some thumbnail rules of thumb here. Thumbnail rules of thumb, that's redundant, but don't seek to fight Satan on your own. Always in the name of Jesus. Trust in God to protect you and limit evil in your life. If, if you go through any kind of, a lot of times I'll, I'll pull, pull a man or two out and ask, do you want to go through some Bible lessons with me? And they always have to memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Because it says this, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Isn't it good to know that the devil cannot tempt you with anything that he hasn't, that God hasn't allowed him to tempt others with. And then he says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. People say, well, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. God put a stop to that. He said, if you're going to tempt him, you stop right here. But with the temptation, God will provide a way out, a way of escape that you can endure it. Jesus is the only man to stand up to Satan full strength, if we can say it that way. Full strength. In the, in the wilderness, 40 days, no food. Satan shows up, gives him a temptation you can only give God, make stones into bread. Full force. And Jesus doesn't break. You've never faced Satan full force, neither have I. <laughs> we give in. We'd give in long before that. So, before moving to the next one, I, I don't want to leave you hopeless. I know a lot of people get afraid when you think of Satan, or you get a lot of weird teaching out there about Satan. So, this is very simple, and keep it simple. The Bible says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of this present darkness. We are in a fight. You are a soldier. This is a war. You are fighting the forces of evil. But the way you fight them is told, it's not going to be these glorious things you see in the movies. You're not going to run into a lot of demon-possessed people. If that happens, it's going to be the rarity. And then you have the name of Jesus. If you, if the Bible tells you how to fight them. First, pray. It's right in the Lord's Prayer. Every single, you're supposed to pray that every day, right? Daily bread. Gives us day our daily bread. It means it's a daily prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The whole point there isn't that God's going to lead you to temptation. You're, you're asking him for protection against Satan. Second, you resist. It's right in James. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The devil's trying to get me to do something. Well, then don't. <laughs> Hang in there long enough, God's going to chase him off. And third, you have the truth of the word of God. Because the number one weapon of Satan, and we don't know how he talks to us, we don't get that, and, and demons, is lies. And you have the truth. 
You have the truth of the word of God. Well, it's okay to let her get the abortion because you don't want to be judgmental and you want to show your loving so that afterwards she still likes you and doesn't think you're a freak. Okay, those are lies. What's the truth say? Thou shalt not kill. (laughs) Okay, third, Holy Spirit. Wild thing happens at the end of this chapter. (laughs) Right? Samuel used to be a big shot. He's even got his name on the book. For the first 16, 17 chapters, he's, he's very powerful. We get to chapter 19, the dude is living in some town somewhere, and David runs to see Samuel. He says, Samuel, you told me I was going to be king one day. Now, I'm a good guy. I didn't hurt this guy. But every time I play songs for him, he throws spears. And Samuel's like, well, maybe he didn't like that tune. He goes, no, trust me. He just wants to kill me. I had to be lowered over the wall in a basket. Samuel says, well, you just chill with me, son. And then Saul said, well, we're going to get him. And and he sends these soldiers, and they say, there he is, let's get him. And before they can get him, they start to prophesy, meaning the Holy Spirit caused them, which is God, to say words that were true. We don't even know what they said, but we we know it's true because God only speaks truth. And then a second set, same thing happened, and then, of course, Saul comes Thinks, well, I'll get him myself. And he takes all his clothes off. How embarrassing. I have dreams. Do you ever have a dream where you're in your underwear in public? They're horrible. I hate those dreams. Gosh, Saul is, the spirit makes him take his clothes off. He's naked in public. And his mouth, this is evil Saul. This is bad Saul. Right? Bad Saul. <laughs> and yet he is speaking the words of God, which are good words. How can that be? As a New Testament believer, we know that if you have the Spirit, it means you're saved. Is Saul saved, after all? No. <laughs> we might think that, because we've read Romans 8, 9, and 10. It says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And you might say, well, maybe I'm a Christian without the Spirit of God. Impossible. It says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, dot, 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 I'm jumping to the end there, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Your life is the Spirit of God. You have the Spirit in you. So if Saul has the Spirit in him, is he saved? And if he's saved, why is he asking, acting like that? You're saved and have the Holy Spirit, but you're not Saul. God's Holy Spirit is behaving in a certain way with Saul and in a certain way with you because there are different times and a different situation. Salvation in the Old Testament is by faith, just like today. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Saul has no faith. He cannot be saved. The Spirit of God dwells, though, in believers differently since Jesus. Now, there's theologians who would argue with that, and I don't mind them arguing. (laughs) Let them argue. But they're wrong. (laughs) Now, they're just wrong. There's a real difference after the day of Pentecost. There's a real difference. So let's get this in notation form. I'll show you a text, and then we'll be closing out. Salvation is still by faith, just like in the times of the Old Testament. But unlike in the time before Jesus died and rose, the Spirit of God is now given as a constant indwelling presence that is better than anything experienced by the people of the Old Testament. It's funny, I was at a pastor's conference. You may not know these guys, so it may not mean anything to you, but it was real fun to me. John Piper, who I love, who's never wrong, Protestant Pope, he, he was taking the position that perhaps the Holy Spirit indwelling someone in the Old Testament was just like the New Testament. Well, the guy he, was, he had as a guest was Bruce Ware, a theologian. And he was the only guy I've ever seen in public say to John Piper, you're just wrong, John, and get away with it. Now, that only means something to those of you who know those are, but look it up. At the Last Supper, before Jesus went to the cross, he said this to his followers. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, have you ever thought to yourself, wouldn't it be great to live back in the first century? 
Oh, how many doubts would run out of my mind if I could just see Jesus do some miracles and ask him my hard questions. Have you ever thought that? I just, it'd be better. Sure, the apostles believe they got to see Jesus. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. And he means heaven. Something better is coming. He says, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, we know from, first, from the Gospel of John, the helper is the Holy Spirit. Wasn't the Holy Spirit there? Of course he's there. He's God. He's everywhere at once. So this is a unique way that the Holy Spirit will come to a human person. But not if Jesus is on the earth. But if I go, I will send him. Now, I don't know all the mechanics of it all, but I do know that when Christ died... He paid for all my sins and all your sins. You may feel condemned, but they're all gone. Your feelings are lying to you if you know Jesus. And therefore, he put his life in me. I'm a holy vessel, not by my goodness, but by the blood of Christ. And the Holy Spirit can dwell in me in a unique way. He could not dwell even in David. Read Hebrews 11. They they wanted to see this. They didn't. Jesus instructed his followers for 40 days after he rose from the dead. He only saw his people. And he told them, listen, after I'm out of here, wait in Jerusalem. Power is coming. Power to witness. Power to do what I ask. Wait together in Jerusalem. Have some prayer meetings. And then at Pentecost, 40 days after he was gone, they were meeting in a room. And the house shook. And tongues as of fire came from. So you could see it, right? which would be wild, fire tongues, like dragon tongues coming down on you. And when they lighted on, so when they landed on you, you started to speak a language you didn't know, and you were prophesying the great things of God, just like Saul was. Just like Saul was doing, but it was different. This is different. So God, remember Balaam's donkey? If you don't, there's a, there's a donkey in the Old Testament that talks. And some people say, well, I don't believe. There's, that's how you know the Old Testament's not true. Donkeys can't talk. No, that's how you know God's miraculous. First, that God makes a donkey. There, if that miracle doesn't get you that there's a God, you'd never met a donkey. <laughs> but God can get a donkey to talk. He, he said, look, I've foretold that Children are going to say, Hosanna, when you ride in. If the Pharisees stop them, I'll get the rocks to do it. Because God can make rocks talk. With Saul, it it really is like a ventriloquist. (laughs) He's not, the vessel is not clean. God just uses the mouth. Say this. And he says that. That's not the same as the New Testament promise of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament promise comes in Joel. And remember what we've learned. If God says it, it can't not happen. So hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophet Joel said this would come. And he meant at the day of Pentecost after Christ. He says, it shall come to pass afterward. I will pour out my spirit on all your flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will Pour out my spirit. The Holy Spirit of God now dwells in believers. You get this idea that the Holy Spirit of God would communicate with righteous people, mostly sometimes unrighteous people, but with righteous people. And, and they would get to be prophets and they'd know a little of what God wants. But in these last days, after Jesus has come, he liberally just pours his spirit out on everyone who believes. It's a different relationship. To be saved is to be indwelled by God in a unique way. Because of the Spirit, because Jesus died, rose, and ascended to heaven, you can have the Spirit in you so you are never alone. Jesus is literally with you. The Spirit is with you in all your situation. He prays for you. The Spirit is with you when you read the Bible so He can shine a light on it or illumine it for you. The Spirit is with you to grow the fruit of the Spirit that you and I certainly need. He empowers you to witness for Jesus. He strengthens you against sin. John 14, 23. Look at this promise from God, from Jesus, before he went to the cross, same night. He says, if anyone loves me, 
He will keep my word. And watch what happens. My father will love him and we will come to him and we'll make our home with him. Now, God is three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. So if the Spirit is in you, Christ is in you. If Christ is in you, the Father is in you. And that's the promise of Pentecost. So, I guess there's a lot of teaching in this sermon. Application, you're going to have to figure most of it out on your own. But know what camp you're in. You're not in Satan's camp anymore. His control on you is limited. Don't fear him. Don't mess with him, but don't fear him. There's only one person you're ever supposed to fear in the Bible. Who's that? God. Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body only. Fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. God is the only scary person in the Bible. (laughs) But he's also the good person in the Bible. Every day, ask for more of the Holy Spirit. What's more of the Holy Spirit? Is he a substance? No. You hear that? I'm filled with, what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means you're yielding. It means you're surrendering. Get up in the morning. This morning, I knew I was going to preach this, so I woke up and I said, Lord, give me more of your Spirit today. And something in me, and I know what it is, it's my old nature, actually was resisting. Something in me was nagging at my brain, saying, you're not good enough. You're not going to be able to live up to that prayer. You're going to not surrender. That's... That's the fight. Flesh wages war against the Spirit. No, God, give me more of your Holy Spirit. Will God answer that prayer in the affirmative? If any of you being evil asks for a piece of bread, your Father doesn't give you a stone, does He? How much more would your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Believe, trust in Christ. Fight the good fight of faith. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.